Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week on the show, Chelsea and Travis sit down with our friend David Curry at Open Doors USA. They talk about the state of religious liberty and the persecuted church in China, as well as China's increasing crackdown on freedom in Hong Kong. It's a fascinating conversation that I think you will find really helpful to understanding some of the some of what's going on below the surface of the headlines of China and Hong Kong and the persecuted church in that part of the world. Uh, as I said, David is uh, the president and CEO of Open Doors USA. Open Doors is a nonprofit dedicated to supporting persecuted Christians all across the world. For over 60 years, Open Doors has worked in the world's most oppressive regions, empowering and equipping persecuted Christians by providing Bibles, training, and programs to help strengthen the church. Since becoming CEO in August of 2013, David Curry has traveled extensively, of which he'll talk about some of those recent travels today on this episode. Curry is often present in Washington, D.C., advocating for religious freedom at the highest levels of the United States government. He has testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee and met with a wide range of policymakers in Washington from both sides of the aisle, including at the White House and the Senate and at the U.S. State Department. ERLC and Open Doors advocate on religious freedom issues often uh, together here in D.C., and we are excited to bring you this conversation between Chelsea, Travis, and David. But before we do that, I just want to remind you that we've got an incredible policy newsletter that we produce each week covering the big topics of conversation that are happening here in our nation's capital. We always focus on one issue in particular that ERLC's policy team is engaged in advocating on. Uh, So here in the month of June, we've been talking a lot about the Supreme Court as uh, Supreme Court cases come down every June in rulings, and we discuss the opinions that are issued, the dissents that are issued, and what it all means for the wide range of issues that the ERLC advocates on, ranging from human dignity issues, religious liberty issues, uh, and and justice issues, and, and many more. So you can learn more and sign up for that newsletter at erlc.com slash policy. David, welcome to Capital Conversations. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Of course. And we also have my colleague, Travis Wusso, um, joining us in D.C. Hey, Chelsea. It's good to be back to D.C. after a long sojourn in the great state of Texas. Well, David, we are so delighted that you are joining us to talk about uh, some really important things today. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about um, Open Doors USA, um, what you do, what your mission is, um, to give uh, our listeners um, an overview of your organization? Well, to give you the the initial history of Open Doors is to tell the story of one man. His, he went by the code name Brother Andrew and People who uh, may have read the book God Smuggler will will remember that name. But he took on a code word because his task, he felt from the Lord as a Christian, was to make sure that people in the former Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union, had Bibles. And uh, 
while we have all kinds of problems today, back then that was a very daunting task. It meant crossing borders. Uh, the Soviet Union had an anti-God philosophy that tried to push out Christianity, tried to eliminate it in all manner of ways, one of which was restricting the, the access to the Bible. So Andrew filled up a VW bug and drove across the border into the Soviet Union repeatedly over and over again. And over the years, that became open doors, our task to help support the persecuted church, people who are oppressed for their faith. In some cases, uh, uh, you know, obviously people lose their life for their faith. Uh, so everything in the spectrum that we can do to support Christians, whether that's getting them Bibles, we still do that in many areas around the world where it is illegal to own a Bible or people want to limit access to it. We, just like Andrew, although I don't drive a VW bug, we do what we have to do to make sure people have a Bible and have the freedom to read a Bible. And ideally, and this is why we work so closely with you all, have the freedom to choose for themselves what they think about it. We're, we're not proposing that everybody is forced to accept uh, Christianity or the words of Jesus, but we would like to have people to have the access to the Bible, decide what they think, if they want to study it, if they want to go to a church and hear somebody talk about it. Uh, and it sounds so rational to say that, doesn't it? But you know what? In places around the world, some of which we're going to talk about today, that's not possible. So we're, we're going to fight for them, stand with them, and help them get Christians get what they need. Absolutely. Thank you for that overview. Um, I've been a big admirer of your work for a long time. Um, I have sort of a personal connection to the organization. Um, I was born in Eastern Europe, and I have uh, several adopted siblings from Russia. Um, so kind of a, a personal connection there as well. Uh, but our conversation today is going to focus on China and Hong Kong and what's been happening with persecuted people in that part of the world. So David, you were recently in China before the outbreak of COVID-19 um, and you interviewed a pastor in Wuhan. Can you tell us a little bit about that interview? It's, it's online for people to, to go watch, but I'd love uh, for you to tell us a little bit about that interview. Well, Maybe I could go back even further. A few years ago, I was in China and interacting with the church there. Open Doors uh, for decades was smuggling Bibles into China. It's not a secret. And one night, in fact, we we loaded a barge f with a, a million Bibles and floated it under the cover of darkness into a, a harbor there in China and distributed uh, a million Bibles in, in, in a day. Uh, so we have a long history in China. But I was in China a few years ago and uh, meeting with the underground, or I guess at that time would be better to call it house church, because the takeaway, say, six years ago was this is a large church. As in, there's, a, there's just so many people that are followers of Jesus. It's, it's in many ways reflective of uh, the American church and that they were strong. They were doing missions. They were doing all kinds of things. And I left there super encouraged. Uh, fast forward to um, the last few years, I began to have a shift uh, in my mind as to what was happening. The statistics were showing um, an increased pressure on China. And then when I went in uh, November, December of this year, what I saw was the fruition of that. Uh, and uh, it was a church 
that is under tremendous pressure from all sides. I I did have a chance to talk with a pastor from Wuhan um, since this whole thing has gone down, that the video that you referenced there. Uh, and what I found was a church that is finding its resilience in the face of tremendous pressure, has, has the Spirit of the Lord. They, they want just simply, I think, to have, if, I could, if you can possibly generalize for such a large uh, group, uh, to have the freedom to go to church. They would like uh, to not be punished for being a follower of Jesus, but they understand right now in China, if you're going to count the cost, of being a follower of Jesus. You have to understand it may affect your job. It may affect your travel. It may certainly affect where your kids go to school. There are all kinds of discriminations right now uh, on the church in China. And this pastor in Wuhan was a great example because just had a sweet spirit. Here they are in the center of this pandemic, and they had to figure out how to be the church, how to be salt and light, how to love, care for people who are in crisis. At the time I had spoke to him, nobody from his church had died, but everybody was affected by it. They were trying to figure out how to do church. Are you going to do a Zoom church? Uh, we're having this conversation through technology. In China, for this pastor and for others, that was banned. Now, they were still finding ways to do it, but but the law, in air quotes here, says you can't do that. You can't have church by that. And so they they wondered and they're pondering whether or not they will be one of those churches that is targeted, raided, shut down. So there's a lot of moving factors right now for these pastors and Christians in China. If if I can just jump in, I mean, I think they're they're you know the the point that you made, David, about the shift that's happened in the last few years. I mean, in a previous role, I was at a at a church that has done a lot of of uh, mission sending. And we've sent, you know, our church has sent a bunch of folks uh, to mainland China. And, you know, I, I mean, I remember back in, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, you know, the dominant narrative was, look, stop calling China a closed country. It's not anymore. It's opening up. You know, things are really changing. Uh, you know, it's, it's on a different trajectory. You know, we need to rethink what China is and, and, how, we're, and how we're engaging there. I think... You can no longer make that claim that that China is on a on a trajectory of opening. I mean, I think we're. I mean, as as we're going to talk about over the course of this conversation, you know, something has dramatically shifted uh, in terms of the way that China sees itself is and and sees uh, you know sees the presence of foreigners, the presence of missionaries, and the and the presence of religion. Yeah, you know, within its own country. This is, uh, I'm sure you have a very informed group of people who listen. So, so I'm going to drop something on the here that might sound uh, somewhat controversial, but the Chinese church was the last group to recognize the shift was happening. When you talk to Chinese believers over the last few years, or even within the Open Doors uh, universe, which is a group of, as you, as you might imagine, Bible smugglers, very skeptical people. Uh, but there was a sense of like, oh, no, it's not going to get that bad. But it did get that bad in a hurry. And so sometimes when you're talking about persecution around the world, this is not just true of China. The people who are closest to it can't always see it. But you had a layering on of pressures. And technology plays a role in this. And we're going to talk about that. So that now 
it's almost like the Chinese church is waking up to a juggernaut. It's already happened. They're looking around going, oh, okay, hold on a second. You can't communicate technically without being surveilled and or shut down. You can't meet together without being watched in some cases, uh, having facial scans. Uh, you're going to lose your job uh, if, if you're in certain roles, if you're a Christian. You just keep going down the list. And it's like, how do you unwind that? God probably has a plan, but right now it looks tough. Absolutely. How is the Chinese Communist Party using um, the outbreak of COVID-19 to increase restrictions and pressures on churches? Well, they're being opportunistic about it. When you have the ability to use science as a, certainly at the beginning, a rational reason to limit the gathering of people. It's hard to question that, isn't it? Uh, we've experienced a little bit of that too. However, there's no science behind a, a reason why people couldn't meet in Zoom churches. And that, so they, China continues to show their hand. They shut, they shut down every church in the country. They're going to uh, certainly try to find a way to allow churches to meet in the future, but it will be under conditions that, that make them be holden to China, be holden to having facial recognition in the church, watching the congregation, um, seeing how many times you show up. Chelsea, if you show up in, in, in most, uh, in every uh, authorized church, they're going to know that Chelsea went to every Sunday service and wait a second she went to some midweek services too why why do you why are you that committed to going to church are you so committed to the church that you don't appreciate the communist system and you're going to get scored negatively for that so that's that's what they're going to push everybody into it's like yes you could meet but you're going to have to meet under our conditions and it's going to monitor your behavior and it's going to affect your life through your social score. So it sounds Orwellian. It is Orwellian, uh, but it's the world of the Chinese church today. Thank you for that um, overview. And it's, I mean, it's chilling just to hear what um, Christians in China are facing. But it, I, I was very encouraged to, to watch that interview with that pastor. And one of the things that struck me, um, you asked him, kind of some spiritual takeaways he he was learning during the coronavirus. And he said that, you know, his church realized that they needed to to step up how they were serving their local community. And, you know, they're giving away face masks to, to police and to hospital workers and food. And it just, even though they are facing um, strict restrictions from the Communist Party, they are continuing to love and to serve. And so I was really, just really struck by that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Hey, actually, before before we move on, David, you you've talked a little bit about the the social score system. It's kind of been in the background of a couple of the comments that you've made in terms of travel restrictions, job opportunities, and that kind of thing. You just mentioned it, but un unpack that a little bit for us. What what is the social score system, and how does it work? If you're a citizen in China, uh, the best way to understand it is that you you start out with two thousand points in your citizenship score. And they're tracking that. So Travis starts out the year, he's got 2,000 points. And assuming that 
you behave yourself, Travis, you're going to be able to do everything you want to do. You can travel, you can, you won't be marked down if you apply for jobs because you are a great communist, Chinese communist citizen. But if you do some uh, simple thing, it, let's say you are flagged for playing your music too loud in the apartment building, or you are caught shoplifting, uh, any at illegal activity, your score goes down. And when you get into certain categories, your travel can be restricted. You may be limited for some jobs. They're going to look at your children and say, you know what, we're not going to let them go. Even though they have great test scores, they may not go to that best university because of your score, Travis. And it keeps the citizens in line. Now, what they've added to this is that Christian behavior, religious behavior, is scored negatively. Or certain, We know for a fact that some of it is. We've asked China for more clarification on how do you score this stuff. But we know for a fact, um, I was in, when I was in China talking to these pastors, pastors who have been limited in how they travel, they can't fly anymore because of, of being a pastor, of sharing their faith, of trying to get their churches together. Uh, so they have to travel by train or there's some places they can't go. Their kids have been restricted from going to universities, um, you know, Harvard or some of these places where the child had earned the right to do that but they can't because dad is a pastor. So it's about understanding what you're, that you are given a certain number, you are subtracted for criminal behavior and they're scoring Christian behavior as criminal. Oh, thank you for that overview. Um, I want to, to turn our attention. We, um, there's certainly persecution of, of Christians in China, but there's also, China's also persecuting um, another group of people, the the Uyghur Muslims. Um, Travis, can you give us an overview of the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims? Um, there have been reports of forced labor, and, and certainly China has placed um, over one million Uyghur Muslims into internment camps. Can you can you share a little bit more about China's persecution of the Uyghur Muslims? Yes. Yeah, so so the the Uyghur community is uh, you know is an is an ethnic group you know they're not han chinese uh, which is the the dominant ethnic group in china um, and they are an historically uh, muslim uh, community they, they predominantly live uh, in western china sort of as china is you know bleeding into or, or transitioning into central asia uh, so there are uyghurs not just in china but you know all you know spread throughout uh, central asia and uh, several years ago china started uh, to crack down on the Uyghur community. Uh, the pretext uh, for the crackdown was concerns about uh, terrorism uh, and, uh, and links between uh, the Uyghur community and uh, the, the broader uh, Muslim community around the world. Uh, and it's not enough time to rattle off all of the things that, that China has done to this community. I mean, the, the most egregious of, of which is, uh, you know, is the placement of uh, one to it, some estimates uh, suggest two million uh, of uh, Uyghurs who are held in um, what what China calls labor training camps or re-education camps. I mean, they're they are effectively uh, concentration camps. You know that uh, you know they, they go through sort of a deprogramming. They are uh, sort of retaught. Chinese communist orthodoxy. Uh, their beliefs are challenged. They're separated from their family. I mean, there there are 
countless stories of Uyghur families, whether in the U.S. or in other places that, you know, they have no idea where their family members are. They don't know if they're still alive. Um, you know, so there is no communication, you know, permitted outside of these camps. We can link to a couple of stories. There have been a couple of, of really interesting document dumps and investigative reporting on the conditions inside these camps. The New York Times did a huge story back in November where, you know, basically the Uyghur community had been smuggling information about, about these camps, you know, through a worldwide network and, and all of those, you know, those, those, uh, those were released. But, you know, there, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot that could be said. I, I, you know, I feel, but, you know, what is without question is that the, you know, the condition in these camps is horrible. This is one of the great atrocities of our time. What the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims tells us is what China would do to Christians if they could. It's important to remember that there are 90 million members of the Communist Party in China. Now, I assume, knowing how this works, that not all of them are passionate about being members of the Communist Party, but they sign up because it's going to help them. But there's 100 million, at least, we believe, Christians, people who, despite the persecution, say, I believe the words of Jesus. I believe he died on the cross, rose again uh, for my sins. So you have a Communist Party that is waking up that they are outnumbered by Christians. Now, Christians don't want to run the government. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't understand this. This isn't a government takeover. They love China. They want to be part of China, but they want the freedom to practice their faith in Jesus, and they will not give it up. China is trying to force them through great pressure, through surveillance, uh, into into a mold but they can't do what they're doing to the uyghurs to the christians because there's so many of them but they will do it to some they're going to try to do it to pastors arrest them retrain them brainwash them i am so troubled by what they're doing to the uyghur muslims they're trying to strip these people of their culture they're trying to force them to subjugate their faith uh and it's it is not a good sign. So it's right to say that China is not just against Christians. They are putting their communist system as preeminent. And it doesn't matter what your ethnicity, it doesn't matter what your faith, Christians are the largest minority group there. But it's, it is just a return to what I talked about at the beginning, a Soviet no-God system that is resurrected in the, in the current day. Right. And, and, so, and self-consciously so. I mean, you know, I think we can also drop a link to, to some reporting about a speech that President Xi Jinping gave in 2016 about the, the program, the official out in the open program, it's not a secret, uh, to, as he put it, sinicize the practice of religion in China, by, by which he meant that you can be a you can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be, you know, you can, you can follow your faith so long as, as you put it, David, it's, it is subjugated underneath the priorities and, and the culture and, uh, you know, to put it more sinisterly, the, the, the system that's in place within China. So, this, I mean, this is the program. This is what President Xi Jinping is trying to do. That's right, Travis. There was a recent uh, Wall Street Journal article um, of President reporting President Xi sinicizing the Bible. 
um, just to, to give an example um, of how he's. Yeah, new translation. Yeah, new translation. Right. Um, so, so David and Travis, how has the global uh, community responded to China's religious persecution um, and human rights violations? Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that and then we'll go into some additional steps uh, the United States and the global community um, can take to counter China morally. So David, how has the global community responded? I think the global community has been intimidated by China, their power, their economic power, the fact that they, they're they ahead of the game. They bought uh, investments around the world, uh, infrastructure investments in, in Africa, in Europe, this technical surveillance system, they're selling to Germany, they're selling it to Egypt, they're selling it to Iran. So China is economically weaved its way into many of the governments and systems around the world, which makes governments at any rate loath to challenge them on these things for fear that they're going to call in their banknote, for fear that they're going to use the surveillance that they've installed against them, and so on and so on and so on. China's been very savvy about this. So I think the response has been unsatisfactory compared to the chilling effect of this surveillance and how they've treated these Uyghurs. Now, some papers in New York Times, um, in fact, I think this is going to be the first praise I've given New York Times in a long time. Uh, But they were, uh, you know, they called out what was happening to the Uyghur Muslims. There are some notable things like that. By and large, your average citizen is not going to be aware of it. They got problems of their own. But um, I'm hoping that just as China has opportunistically jumped on the COVID-19 pandemic to clamp down on their citizens, uh, I'm hoping that the rest of the world will use this opportunity to see that China has their own interests here. Their, Their best interest may not be the best interest of their citizens, and it's certainly not our best interest to get too close to a regime that is oppressing people at such a shocking rate. Uh, Travis, what uh, additional steps do you think the U.S. and the global community uh, can take to counter China morally? Well, we, we've been asking for, for a range of things, and, and uh, David and, and Open Doors have, have participated uh, in this. I don't want to speak for Open Doors. But you know there there are a range of tools that the government has uh, to uh, to step up the pressure um, on China. I think you know a starting point would be global Magnitsky sanctions uh, for the officials who are responsible for these abuses uh, within the Communist Party in in Xinjiang Province, which is the western province where where uh, where the Uyghur community is is predominantly uh, concentrated. But you know there there are other steps as well. Um, you know, so far, no high-level uh, human rights official has been allowed uh, to uh, to visit uh, Xinjiang to see the concentration camps uh, without Chinese Communist Party interference. Nor has nor has any credible uh, international inspector uh, been permitted to do so. So that would be a second step. You know, a third could be uh, the use of the uh, Frank Wolf International Re- Religious Freedom Act. Uh, which uh, contains a, a number of authorizations for the State Department and the administration to apply sanctions that are specifically tied 
to international or to religious freedom uh, abuses. Right now, there there are uh, you know I, th- I think we should acknowledge there are uh, a couple of sanctions that are placed on China for uh, for its uh, religious freedom abuses. But they're you know as as we would say in D.C. they're they're double-hatted sanctions, meaning they were originally put in place for something else. And now our government is saying, well, and in it, in it, it's for that, but also for, for religious freedom. We think that, you know, we think that in order to speak clearly, uh, that, that the government needs to apply, uh, these sanctions, uh, new sanctions to China that are, that are specifically, uh, connected to these religious freedom abuses, because, you know, as, as David has pointed out, as we've been talking about through this conversation, you know, we, we're on a, a very dangerous, uh, an alarming uh, trajectory, um, and you know, I think the last thing that we would say is, you know, there, the the United States needs to recognize, and I and I think that I think that USAID is is waking up to this reality, uh, but needs to recognize that as as David pointed out, China has for a long time been using its foreign uh, investment strategy in order to purchase the silence and acquiescence um, of a number of members of the international community. I've seen this firsthand uh, when talking to uh, ambassadors and representatives from developing countries in Geneva. They are scared, and rightly so, about what China could do to them if they uh, speak alone or uh, try to assert any kind of leadership uh, on uh, on these issues. So, you know, there there is a lot of work to be done. I think we're behind the curve. Uh, we're certainly behind uh, behind China in terms of the game that China is playing, both within its own borders, but also internationally. Um, and we need to catch up. That's very helpful, and there are definitely tools. Uh... The U.S. has in its tool belt to counter China morally. And I think, David, your point of China exporting its surveillance technology um, to oppress religion and human rights um, abroad is extremely important to to keep in mind. Um, With that being said, um, we're going to turn our attention to Hong Kong, which China has been increasingly involved in. Um, in recent weeks and months. Um, You've both been to Hong Kong in recent months. Uh, Can you give listeners a broad overview of what's been happening in Hong Kong over the past year? Um, David, if you could give a a broad overview, we'll start with you. Well, I think it's important to start with the culture of Hong Kong. It's distinct. There's a dynamism uh, that has been cultivated over generations in Hong Kong. It's not just financial uh, dynamism. It's a it's a love of freedom uh, that the Chinese people haven't known for generations and generations. So, when you're in Hong Kong, what you sense is a group of people who want to be free, and they understand that there's this behemoth right next door that's massive that has exercised control over a largely passive population for some time, and they don't want to live that way. So China has uh, made some promises over how they will integrate Hong Kong. They're, they're systematically breaking those promises. The Chinese people who have spoke out have faced any number of issues. And now there are new laws which are going to tighten the grip uh, of China on, on its population. And I think they certainly, uh, China sees this as just you are part of China and this is, the, this is the way Beijing is. You can't walk around Beijing without being watched and tracked by so many cameras you can't imagine. If you and I go to a restaurant, this is a, maybe a picture for people. You might have a camera in your restaurant that's watching your behavior. 
you might even have a camera, let's say, watching whether you run a red light. But those cameras aren't connected and monitored by the IRS. In China, every camera you're looking at is monitored by the Communist Party, and they're using algorithms. Hong Kong doesn't want to live that way. They want to be free. They want to make their own choices. They don't want to be arrested for having an opinion. So all of those things are are leading to some showdowns. And China has, like a boa constrictor, has the patience to squeeze it to death if they want. Um, and, and I'm proud that the U.S. has you know stood up for the Hong Kong people. But I think it's you know it's it's questionable whether we have the patience that China does on this. So that law, uh, David, you mentioned um, that that China's constricting Hong Kong with is a law called the National Security Law uh, that China is set to pass in the coming weeks, and we and we've seen um, tightening already um, in recent weeks. Uh, we um, had the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, and for the first time. Um, people were not allowed to gather in Hong Kong to have a memorial. People gathered anyway, but but you're seeing that tightening of um, Beijing's influence in Hong Kong. What are some of the implications if this law passes and if China continues its tightening of Hong Kong? How would that change the dynamics between the U.S. and Hong Kong? And how does this affect or could this affect religious liberty in Hong Kong? It, it absolutely will. I'm going to work backwards here. It affects religious liberty significantly. The, the Chinese government understands that the West sees the world through the rule of law. So if they change a law that gives them the freedom to, let's say, go into Hong Kong, monitor a situation, kick on an individual and punish them in such a way, as long as the law allows them to do it, even if it's onerous or, or restricts that person's rights, they believe that it's going to give them freedom to do whatever they want to do in the eyes of the international community. So it's going to limit, it's going to limit uh, how people gather for church. It's going to try to sinicize, uh, using that word, uh, the Hong Kong church, which is a vibrant church. It's not unlike the other parts of the culture. It's a di- really dynamic uh, body of Christ there in, in Hong Kong. So they're going to use this to really clamp down on individuals. And they believe, China believes it's, that the Western world will allow them to do it. Uh, Travis, you've been in Hong Kong in recent months. Um, how have your conversations with, with Christians in Hong Kong gone? And what are some of the fears they have? Um, as China is tightening hold on China or on Hong Kong, excuse me. Well, I think, you know, the experience that I've had, especially talking with young Hong Kongers is that they can sort of see the writing on the wall. Uh, we've, we've been talking about uh, when I was there in November, Xinjiang came up in almost every conversation uh, in part because they, they're watching carefully what China's doing in the mainland, recognizing that, there is nothing to stop. Once, once China asserts dominance over Hong Kong, there's nothing to stop them from treating Hong Kongers in the same way that they've treated um, their own citizens in the mainland. Uh, so I think that's the first point. You know, the second thing I would say is that, you know, young, especially young Hong Kongers feel trapped. You know, I mean, imagine, you know, as David was saying, I mean, Hong Kongers are very proud of their, you know, as they would put it, you know, heritage of freedom. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting place because, you know, if you go to a lot of places in the world, 
that have a colonial history, uh, you know, there there is an ambivalence about that past. And in Hong Kong, it's it's more complicated because there, you know, there really is a warmth towards the British legal system that they inherited uh, to what the United Kingdom, in in some ways, achieved in Hong Kong. That you know, I think as an American, I I could relate with in a in a weird sort of way. Uh, and so, you know, they, they have grown up with these freedoms, in some cases, taking them for granted, assumes that in, in 2047, when the 50 years uh, of the, uh, you know, Sino-British agreement, um, you know, came to an end, that uh, there would be a different China uh, that existed at that time. And so they feel trapped. Imagine for us, you know, you, you have nowhere to go. You have no other passport. Um, you have no, uh, you know, you have no other home. Uh, and you're watching your home really change and and uh, deteriorate really quite rapidly uh, before you know before your eyes. So you know I think it's it's that sense of anxiety and feeling trapped that is fueling some of the emotion uh, in the protests that you've seen uh, over the last you know certainly in November it was a really you know it was at a high point when I was there, but you know they've picked back up again. I, I was just you know I was talking with a, a friend of mine who is a member of the Legislative Council. Uh, just um, uh, just last week, and he was sharing that you know basically every day in Central, which is you know the the the, the business and government district um, on Hong Kong Island, uh, is as he described it a war zone. Every lunch, you know, at, during lunchtime, you know, rubber bullets being fired and and so on. So I feel to to the point that David made about um, you know the future of Hong Kong. I you know I'm. I feel fairly pessimistic. You know, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, it isn't clear to me what the path forward is and, and what, uh, you know, what is the global strategy uh, to force China to back down? They, they obviously see what's happening uh, in Hong Kong as a serious, you know, perhaps even existential uh, threat, which is why they're, you know, which is why they are reacting the way that they are. Uh, things are, are definitely rapidly changing in that part of the world. And, um, we are continuing to, to pay attention. Um, one thing um, to note is that several governments around the world, including ours, have introduced legislation um, to allow Hong Kongers um, to, to enter into their countries as, as uh, priority refugees. So just something to flag. Like I said, these things are changing um, rapidly and we're continuing to to monitor the situation. Um, David, as we wrap up our time together, um, I want to point out a statistic from your 2020 World Watch List, which um, if our listeners have not uh, clicked over to that World Watch List, it is such a helpful resource. Um, but this statistic um, in, in your watch list says that China is persecuting more Christians than any other country with nearly 1 million um, under scrutiny. How can we pray for our brothers and sisters in China? And what are some practical steps uh, you'd offer for those that want to get more involved um, on behalf of persecuted people in China? Yeah, there is a there is a hundred million followers of Jesus in China. Almost all of them under uh, oppression. Uh, so th- that's what makes it the most difficult uh, or the largest group persecuted by a, a particular government. I th- obviously, this is going to be an issue of prayer. And I, when I pray, I pray for the leaders of China. I pray for the leaders of the Chinese church. These are the people who, uh, some of them are imprisoned, the, the brave ones. Uh, they're being cast as uh, people who are 
yeah, you might say somehow in, in bed with the West or, uh, you know, with the Americans or whatever, but basically all they're doing is standing up for, they love China and they want to be, they're Chinese citizens. They want to speak up for the freedom of the church. So you've got to pray for those people. And is, this, is, this is a hard truth, but China has a collective viewpoint of the world, and it's brought about a passivity up to this point in the church. The thing that can change the future of Hong Kong and China is that the people get tired of a handful of people forcing them into a mold of belief of uh, uh, the religion of the communist system and they rise up and it's can't just be a i don't suggest militarily but i just means continue to speak and it can't just be christians it's going to have to be people across the spectrum that understand that what's happening to uyghurs is happening to christians what's happening to christians will happen to others china is trying to find ways to use air quotes here the law uh, to restrict people's freedom and force them under their boot. So I think we need to pray for the leaders of China to have an awakening, for the people to lose their passivity and get a motivation to speak up. And um, and you never know what how political events have changed things. We know that COVID is opportunistically used by China, but we also know that it's revealed the selfishness of that country, uh, the, of the country's leadership, and maybe this is a, as a chance for us to to help the world understand that China is not a good actor on the international stage, particularly in, in my interest in regards to religious liberty. David, thank you for for that answer. Um, those are definitely very good things uh, to pray for. And thank you so much for joining us today on Capital Conversations and for all the amazing work Open Doors um, does on behalf of persecuted people globally. You all work in, in many different countries and many different areas, and we are just uh, grateful for your, your work and to partner alongside you um, in this work. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Every day we hear countless messages telling us how to think about the world around us. As the culture pulls us in different directions, it's easy to get overwhelmed and disengage completely or even begin to be more influenced by the world than the Word of God. But how should we respond to everyday events and issues in a God-honoring way? A new book from The Good Book Company titled Beautifully Distinct, Conversations with Friends on Faith, Life, and Culture. Edited by Trillia Newbell brings together 15 women, including Earl C. and Capital Conversation's own Chelsea Patterson-Soblick, to discuss films, books, and media. The book also outlines biblical principles for approaching difficult topics like body image and racism, and encourages its readers to shape our lives around Christ. Beautifully Distinct is now available at your favorite bookstore or thegoodbook.com. You can find out more in the link in our show notes. That's beautifully distinct at thegoodbook.com. I'm joined by Travis and Chelsea here after you just heard that phenomenal interview with our friend David Curry of Open Doors. Uh, Chelsea, that was that was a great interview. I'm always super encouraged to hear about the work of our uh, great partner organizations like Open Doors. 
Yeah, Jeff, I was extremely encouraged by that interview. And David had um, just so many thoughtful things to say about about the situation in China and how Christians can get involved. And I really appreciated the end um, point of how he encouraged us to to pray um, because each one of us can can be engaged in um, praying for the leaders of China, for our brothers and sisters in China, and for more people to come to know Christ in China. So yeah, it was a great interview. So Travis, talk to us about how the ERLC is engaged specifically on the uh, situation that's ongoing and developing and really troubling in Hong Kong and China's increased involvement there. Yes, yeah, so the first thing that we're doing is encouraging uh, the administration to to increase its pressure on China because of the way that the Chinese government is eroding the uh, autonomy of Hong Kong. Uh, and we're sort of doing this work through a mechanism that was created by a, a piece of legislation that passed uh, back in November. But, you know, there are other things we're looking at as well in terms of eligibility for uh, Hong Kong residents as a part of the uh, United States Refugee Resettlement Program um, and in a range of other a range of other issues. So there is a number of policy uh, policy hooks that we're leaning in on. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is, and I think we've talked about this before, I, I'm not sure if this is the first time we've teased this, but uh, when I was there in November, uh, had a uh, filmmaker, a storyteller uh, there with me, and we did a bunch of interviews and are nearing the the completion of of that film. We don't have a we don't have a release date just yet. We're we're uh, I think we're looking at the rough cut uh, of it later this week. But we're really excited to show that. I mean, I think it it shows you know in just sort of you know very starkly what the situation uh, is like there. We have a bunch of interviews from some of the old guard uh, Hong Kong political class as well as. Uh, uh, sort of, you know, my generation of uh, of leaders, as well as you know, as well as interviews with a, a number of students who have stepped up, some of whom uh, ran for office and and won their seats. So uh, it's it's a great film. I'm really excited to show it to you guys. Yeah, I can I can attest, having uh, gone through the the transcripts uh, and the footage uh, that you have, uh, and to give give people a, a preview of all those conversations, we did a special podcast episode, uh, Travis, when when you were still on the ground in Hong Kong last fall, which I will link to in the show notes uh, of of this episode as well, so listeners can go check that out to preview the uh, the film that will be released later this summer. Uh, Chelsea, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and I just had a follow-up question uh, that maybe you could uh, shed some more light onto, is how how David talked about the way that China was uh, has been in the process of exporting and really purchasing the silence of the free world to not speak out about their human rights abuses. Uh, can you talk to us and, and unpack a little bit more how people might see the effect of China purchasing the silence of the free world in their own lives. Uh, yeah, Jeff, one of the um, analogies I really appreciated that David used was that of a boa constrictor, um, because I think we often forget that China um, plays the long game. And, you know, I, I think we're very reactive in so many ways in the West, but China really does um, have the patience um, to play kind of a, a longer game than we often play um, in the United States. Um, and China is very strategic 
and how they bully other um, other countries and how they bully other organizations. So a couple examples um, we've seen in the past um, year or so are China's financial hold of the NBA um, last autumn. The um, general manager of the Houston Rockets um, tweeted an image um, that said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Um, And within hours, the Chinese Basketball Association um, retaliated and said that they would suspend all business with the Rockets if they didn't basically um, apologize for that. And um, they did. The general manager apologized and said he didn't mean to offend any uh, um, Chinese fans or anything like that. And of course, that has implications for other um, NBA teams as well. Um, so, so you saw that kerfuffle. And then in recent weeks, um, there's been reporting that a U.S.-based group hosting um, a, a Zoom call um, in remembrance of the Tiananmen Square massacre was shut down by Zoom after China registered um its uh, displeasure with that. Um, And and just to give uh, listeners a brief um, refresher on the Tiananmen Square massacre, this was a a crackdown of China's military on its citizens as they were peacefully protesting um, in Tiananmen Square 31 years ago. Um, We talked about with David that Hong Kong, for the first time um, since the the massacre, was not um, legally allowed to hold its memorial. Um, Of course, citizens um, defied that and and held a memorial anyway. But again, you've seen Zoom come under... um, under the limelight with China being able to play puppeteer with um, with these um, companies. So um, those are a couple examples. Of course, there's more. And I, I think we're going to see even more more with that. Travis, uh, just as we're as we're wrapping up this episode, thinking about China and how how the United States government needs to counter China morally for their human rights abuses. You, you've been in the human rights space for a long time, and so you know how domestic politics can sometimes complicate uh, foreign policy uh, advancements of, of things like human rights. Talk to us about that situation right now with America's current, some of America's current domestic politics affecting the way that America uh, also exerts its influence on the global stage. Yeah, it's a good question. I think an assumption that underlies the way that we have been talking about uh, the need to counter China morally is that there's been a lot of discussion about countering China uh, in terms of trade and counter China's uh, foreign aid strategy and countering China militarily and, and countering China with the development of technology. But we think that there is a not enough emphasis on uh, the way that China is also making a moral case for what you know for its system of government and the way that it is choosing to uh, you know export technology, but also export its system to say, look, if you're a developing country, you don't need to follow the American model or the Western model uh, of of democratization and liberalization of your institutions. Uh, you can you can still be a strong uh, a strong authoritarian government. Uh, and we'll show you how to do it. I think that's 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 really troubling for 
uh, for the world. It's really troubling uh, for people who are made in the image of God, uh, who who live in repressive places. Uh, and ultimately, it's 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 bad news for the United States. It's not even in our own own interest for China to be uh, to be uh, behaving in this way. And so we have we've long been concerned that uh, human rights is deprioritized relative to other concerns such as trade uh, or or other uh, you know other domestic policy priorities. And you know there's been some reporting in the last couple of weeks that that. Uh, confirms that you know confirms that fear, and so, and so we think this administration needs to uh, change its course and uh, elevate the role that human rights abuses plays uh, in its thinking about its foreign policy, but but in in its actual foreign policy towards China. Um, you know we, you know I I think you know it's it is uh, it is a good thing that our government has started to shift its policy uh, related to foreign aid. Uh, as a way of countering China uh, and their their influence in the developing world uh, through China's own uh, aid program. We need to do the same thing with respect to human rights. Travis, Chelsea, this is a really helpful conversation and appreciate it very much. Thanks, Jeff. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoy listening to this show, I encourage you to subscribe to us and uh, maybe even leave us a rating and a review wherever you are listening. Uh, if you know of somebody in your church or, or community or, or at your university uh, that's interested in what all is happening in Hong Kong and in and, and China across the world, not only related to the COVID-19 pandemic, but more broadly to human rights and, and what it looks like for the persecuted church in that part of the world, why don't you send them a link to this conversation? I'm sure that the uh, information that Travis and Chelsea highlighted, as well as the really insightful conversation with David Curry of Open Doors would be really interesting to them. In addition to podcast places like Apple Podcasts Spotify. Every episode of Capital Conversations can be found at erlc.com where you can learn more in the show notes. Thanks to our production team and thanks also to you for joining us today for this conversation. Resources are available at erlc.com to equip you and your church. <laughs>